African church is when somebody's singing an offering like that, um, half a dozen people just throughout the congregation just stand up. And it's just a way just to say, yes, that's, that's right. That's what I want to, I want to sing it with you, even though I'm not a good singer. I want to, I want to, I can't sing, but I can join with you by just sort of standing up. So thank you, worship team. We are in a series here. We have one more sermon after this week in Romans 8, which is often called the greatest chapter in the Bible. So uh, if you'd open your Bibles to Romans 8, if you don't have one, there's one in front of you, page 944 is where we'll be, and we're going to read 16 through 30. But before I I do that, I want us to make sure uh, you see how these verses are fitting together. First, verse 17 is a a pivotal, pivotal verse. We're children, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we're we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, and it's not a period there, although we long for a period. There's a comma, and, and the comma tells us, well, as long as these things are true about us, and that is that we're going to be suffering with Jesus. So Paul isn't trying to say, hey, once you become a Christian, it's all gloom and doom. He's really just preparing Christians for suffering that will be inevitable. Some of that will be physical suffering. Some will be mental or emotional suffering, relational suffering, all kinds of different ways. And he really just doesn't want anybody coming to Christ thinking, hey, I've come to Jesus. I'm a child of the king. I'm not going to suffer anymore. That's, that's a future glory. The, the current status is that we are going to suffer with Jesus. And so we know this. Christians have car accidents and cancer, depression and disease. And we experience hurricanes and hate. He's just preparing these first century followers and 21st century followers for what will happen. So what I see here is verse 18, really through the end of the chapter, but for our text today, verse 30. Paul is just trying to give support to those who are going to suffer. He's just saying, hey, you're going to suffer because, because you're connected with Christ, I don't want you to be caught off guard. And so when it happens, I'm going to provide several support structures for you. And, and he gives at least five in these texts. And we'll pick them apart here as we go through. So let's stand together and we'll begin with verse 16 and go through verse 30. Romans 8, verses 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That we are children of God, and if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption 
as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not yet see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, God love God, God works things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. So five supports, three of which we covered last week that I'll just mention briefly here, and then I'll spend the rest of the time on the two remaining supports, verses 26 and 28. The first support, again, we talked about this last week. Paul wants us to consider something. He wants to have, have, us, have something in mind because he knows when you're suffering, you're in pain. And as I said, when you're in pain, your world shrinks down to a single frame. And you feel like, I'm in this pain and it's never going to go away. And when you get into what I call the frame of pain, then when you're in that frame, you stretch that frame over the rest of your life. Like, I'm never going to feel any different than I do right now. And so while, when you're in that frame, he wants you to consider something. What does he want you to consider? He wants you to consider that it's not worth comparing your present sufferings, which are real and hurt. But he wants you to, to, to not see your life as a frame, but a film. And he wants you, while you're in that frame, to understand there is a film. Think about the film and what's going to roll out. And that is that the, the glory of God is going to be revealed to us. So that's one support. Another support is this word groaning. All creation groans. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan. So we're not surprised, as followers of Jesus, that we're groaning. And we're not alone in our groaning second support third support groaning leads somewhere it's important to understand or to notice paul's analogy he chooses it carefully it's as if we're in the pains of what does he say childbirth it's not in the pains of a heart attack i mean he could have said that but that wouldn't be a great analogy would it it's it's childbirth this this is painful it's really painful I'm not, I can't take away that pain at this moment, but I'm telling you something. I want you to see the film all the way to the end that, that life is being birthed. God is using this, so your suffering is not in vain. We, have, we, we don't suffer as people who don't have hope. So those are three supports that we mentioned last week, and today we'll mention two more. Verse 26, you see it, likewise. Transition word. Hey, likewise. Okay, I've been giving you support. Here's one more support. Likewise, there, there's another support, and that is the Spirit helps us. And we'll talk about that. And then verse 28, probably the most well-known verse in the, in the book of Romans 8. And we know, we know something. 
When you're in, you're in suffering, you can be fragile, you can be disoriented. And Paul wants to say, hey, there's something you know. And knowing this in that fragile state is going to be a great support. So before we take on these two, I want to make a couple of preliminary comments. First of all, <clears throat> this may be a mistake here early this morning. Imagine your favorite dessert. Hmm. Triple layer fudge cake. I mean, what, what is it? You know, you, you have it in your mind. It's a blueberry cobbler. And it's got just the right portion. You know this? You like, a, like blueberry cobbler? It's got the right portion of that, like, crumbly stuff. Blueberry stuff and ice cream. Right? It can't be too much of one. You've got to get just the right proportion. See, this, this could be a mistake. This may be the end of my sermon right here. <laughs> but it's whatever you have in your mind, it's not a dessert that you just sort of like gobble up. It's a dessert that you experience. You, you have better than this? Where you just you take a bite and you just want, like the whole world stops for a moment. And it's just you and the blueberry cobbler. I've seen coffee drinkers like this. They take a little sip and just for them, for the moment, it's them and their coffee. It's just nothing else is happening. That, that's this passage right here. It's so dense. It's so rich. You have to experience it. It's not something you can just eat up. Some scripture passages you, you just sort of consume. But, but this is one that you experience. And you can't eat the whole thing in one bite. And so in this text, there's going to be lots of bites left over there. You're going to, man, you didn't even talk about that. Well, we can't eat the whole dessert this morning. We'd be here for, you know, two days. So I just want you to, I'm putting that out there. We're, we're going to be experiencing some bites, but we can't take every bite this morning. The second thing I want you to have in mind as we think about these verses, some of you might remember, it's been some years now, uh, 2010, there was a cave-in in, in Chile, and 33 miners got stuck a half a mile below the surface. Half a mile. And they lived for 70 days in a little compartment that was at a constant 90 degrees. 70 days. So miraculously, they found these guys they, who had already been there for 17 days, they found them, and then it took basically two months to drill a 26-inch, like, pipe hole. So they put this little tube-like cage down the pipe hole, half a mile down. One guy would get in it, close the cage, and they'd pull him up. The ride up took 17 minutes. Let's try to ma- imagine just you're, you're in the middle of the earth in this cage for 17 minutes. And all the miners made it out safely. And they talked about how these men survived. And one of the engineers said it best in terms of the psychological forces, as you can imagine, being trapped of half a mile below the earth. He says this, the miners needed to constantly understand what we knew up here at the surface. We had to be constantly communicating Hey, we're working on the surface. We don't want you to lose hope. I mean, I realize you're stuck in your spot. It's hot. It's dark. You, you can't wait to get out. 
and you, you just psychologically there might be a lot of pressure, but we want you to know we're sending down regular messages that things are happening up here on the surface for your good. That's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to say at some points you're going to be down in a hole. And just not just physically, but psychologically it could be overwhelming. And so Paul is trying to say, hey, guys, there are things happening on the surface of God's reality. And you may not be able to see them, but one day you're going to experience them. There's going to be a great rescue. And I'm going to keep sending that message down so that you don't lose hope. That's the picture that I think Paul wants us to have in mind. And so on the surface of God's reality, again, these are supports that Paul's trying to give us. This one great support that's happening that we don't often see or even feel. But the Spirit, verse 26, it's helping us in our weakness. We don't even know what to pray for. So you're just groaning. You're just groaning with words that are so deep that you, don't, you just don't have any, anything to say. You're just groaning. Some of you have been there. And the Spirit comes in and is interceding for us. You, you get in a tailspin. It's, it's leading in some sort of downward spiral. You feel it and you, you don't know what to do. I don't even know what to do. It says you don't know what to do, plus you don't know what to pray for. It's so painful or, or you're so fragile or it's so disoriented that you just go, I don't even know how to pray. And a few people, and I'm in this category, when you get into that downward spirit, you ever feel like, I hope I don't pray for the wrong thing. You ever been there? Like, God, I don't, I don't know. This circumstances is so, is so heavy, so bizarre, and I'm praying, and then I'm thinking, I hope that's not the wrong thing. I mean, God, don't hear that prayer if that's the wrong You get so disoriented, you get so confused, and Paul sends this great message down. Hey, don't worry. The Holy Spirit's praying for you. And and he's praying perfectly for you. So he's not worried about your groanings or your prayers, like somehow you're going to mess it up. No, he's involved now. He's gotten himself involved. He, He is praying alongside your soul. And it comes in and it says he helps you, which is really not, I mean, I realize you have to use some word here, but this isn't a great word to translate from the Greek. The Greek word is 17 letters long, which I'm not going to try to pronounce for you right now. So this is a big word, and the idea is that somebody's being crushed by a weight, and the person who helps, they come in, they get all the weight underneath that weight, and they put it on their shoulders, and you begin to make forward progress. That's, that's help. See, help's not a great word. This is, this is really shouldering some heavy weight, and he's going to come in. He's going to get himself underneath that weight, the heaviness in your soul, and he's going to actually carry it forward, and he's going to carry it forward perfectly. And knowing this information... Helps you stabilize when you're in a tailspin. When you're just saying, God, what do I do here? I mean, I don't know which way to go in this 
situation with my, my family or my career or this financial stress or what's happening to my body physically. I, I'm so disoriented. It's so heavy. I can't seem to find experts to help me. And all I can do is just sit in my chair and just groan. Some of you have been to that point. The Holy Spirit. Paul sends information now. Hey, he's not rescuing you out of your capsule today. Still might be dark. It still might be hot. But don't lose hope. Don't worry if you don't have the right words. Because the Holy Spirit's going to come in, get up underneath that load, and pray perfectly for you. That, that, that's great support. That's great news when you're suffering. Second thing, verse 28. Verse 28, notice the transition. And we know, okay, we know. So it's important, probably the better translation is but we know, not and. But we know. And the reason I say it's important is because in verse 26 and 27, it's been, we don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to think about this. I don't know what to pray for. And then Paul says, okay, but the Holy Spirit's going to come in. But in this place where you don't know stuff about what's going on with your situation, here's something you do know. When everything's super complex and you can't figure it out, there is something you can know. That's the, that's the feeling of verse 28, the transition. We don't know because the, the, the life that we have is so complex. There's so much confusion and corruption and chaos. We're limited in our understanding. So many things you don't know. The older you get, to me, the more you don't know. I knew so much at 25, um, but I've lost a lot of that in the last 25 years. But there is something you know. Something rock solid. What is that? That God is at work. I mean, it's so chaotic that you don't feel like anything's happening. And I'm sending down this message if I'm on the surface saying, yeah, but here's something we do know. We, knew, we do know that God is at work. We know that for all those who love God, all things are working together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's not surprising that this is the favorite verse, is it? I mean, you get in these chaotic situations and you just want to say, okay, Romans 8.28, I don't see it, I don't feel it, but I know it, I know it. It's a, it's, but the thing about the verse you have to be careful about, especially when you're saying it to somebody else, a little bit of a warning, it's not a confetti verse, right? You don't walk into the hospital room, somebody's had a heart attack, and pop open 8.28. Boo, hey. It's like pixie dust. People use it like pixie dust. It's not a confetti verse. It's a concrete verse. So you want to come in saying, here's some, you don't know where to stand. Let's stand here. Here's something we know. We don't just pop confetti like, oh, you know, everything's working together. And of course it is, but you just don't want to use it like magic dust. You want to use it as concrete. That's what Paul wants you to say. This is concrete. This is when everything's falling apart and your world is caved in. Here's a place you can stand. You know you can stand here on this concrete that God is actually working together. 
Again, these verses, so dense. Can't possibly eat every bite here. I was going to a commentary this week. And I thought, I'll just, you know, I've got my sermon mostly together. I want to just read this guy's thoughts on, on these verses, 28, 29, 30. So the old pastor, he's got some good content and all that's been put into a commentary. And just these three verses, I opened up to his commentary. Guess what I found? 16 chapters on three verses, 210 pages on three verses. So he, he preached 16 times on two verses that I'm only going to give a few minutes to. So this is, this is the triple layer fudge choc- chocolate cake that we can't possibly get through. And I just want to try to take three bites, all right? Number one, all things. See that? All things. All things work together for good. So I'm curious, again, every phrase pregnant, but I'm just circling all things. What does it mean, all things? Romans 11.36 says this, For from him and through him and to him are, what? All things. All things are coming from God. All things are, are coming through God. All things are going to God. So I look at this and I think all things means, it means all things. Everything. Every event, every situation, every person, every hurricane. All all things are designed by God, sustained by God, moving towards God. Romans 8.35, you can just see it here when we'll talk about this next week. Just look a little bit further down in your text. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he lists these things. Because when you're suffering, you feel like you get separated. There's distance between you and the Lord. So you might be experiencing tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, a sword, or a sword. Verse 37, no, in all these things, all things, we are more than conquerors. So what's included in all things? Famine. What's included in all things? The sword. What's included in all things? All these things he just listed. These are part of all things. It's not like all good things. And then over here, all the bad things, I don't know who's in control of that. No, God's in control of these things. Somehow, his sovereignty, he's in control of, he's in control of all things. Some of you will remember the the great little story of Joseph. Remember Joseph, the coat of many colors, hated by his brothers. Jealous, they took the coat away from him, stripped him down, threw him in a well, ended up selling him to... Egypt, these caravans going down from Israel to Egypt. He gets enslaved in Egypt, not surprisingly. He experiences personal injustice, gets blamed for something that he didn't do. Even he was acting righteously, but he got blamed as if he was a criminal, and he got sent to prison. So here you are, you've, you've, been, dis, you've been disowned by your family, 
you've been enslaved, and then you're trying to do what's right, and you go to prison for it. He eventually gets out of prison, becomes a very uh, powerful figure in the Egyptian uh, nation, and saves the brothers that sent him into slavery. In a, in a moment in the Bible, you really wish you could cut him being in the room. He reveals himself to his brothers. And you know, you know what he says? You meant something for evil. But God meant it for good. Now, I doubt when he's in the well, he's saying, Romans eight twenty eight. We're being sold into slavery. We're being treated unjustly and imprisoned. But now as an older man, he can say, hey, you know what? I mean, what you guys did, it was evil and it hurt me. But even in that hurt, even in my famine or nakedness or sword, God means all things for good. So you might be down in a hole today and I want you to know that's part of all things. I may not know why. I don't, may not know what God's purposes are. You might not be able to see it in your lifetime like Joseph was able to see it, but we know something. God's in control of it. That's a great support. Now look, question number two. All things are work together for good. Who does it work together for good? I mean, all things are working together for good for some group of people. What, who are those people? It's a specific group of people. Well, he tells us, first of all, first answer to that is all things work together for good for those who love God. Right? That's right in the text. So the people who love God, those people who have received Jesus as their substitute, now don't have any condemnation, verse 1. They've set their minds on the Spirit. They're putting to death the misdeeds of the body. They're crying out to God as their Father, Abba, Father. They're comparing their present sufferings to future glories. They're not, not getting stuck in this frame. They're, they're choosing to follow after God even while they're groaning and waiting patiently. These are the people who love God. And God is working all things together for these people. And that, that's Paul's first answer to that question. But that's, and that's a good answer, but he's not going to rest everything on our love for God. Aren't you glad about that? Paul isn't going to ultimately rest this enormous promise of all things working together for good on your love for God or my love for God. One commentary said this, and I love it. That would be like resting a mountain on a marshmallow. Don't you love that? I mean, yes, you, you and I, we have to love God. We have to do these things that have been in Romans 8. But, but what if that was it, all that mountainous promise was resting on your love for God? You'd be pretty nervous. So he doesn't just rest it there. He rested on this incredible promise that all things are working together for good for those who are called, summoned, called according to God's purpose. So really, everything's really resting on God. You feel that concrete 
sense of security. Yes, I've got to be loving God, but really everything's resting on God himself. Amen to that. God ultimately is resting his eternal promises on himself. And this is where it's really mind-blowing, but God lives outside of time. He's sovereignly in control of all things. And just notice how he speaks in the past tense here. He lists what what theologian called a golden chain of events. And it's as if they have already happened. Notice, he foreknew. He predestined, past tense. He called, past tense. He justified, past tense. And now you might be thinking, and he will glorify. That would be the way I would have written it, which is why I didn't write it. He, he foreknew something, he predestined something, he's called something, someone, he's justified someone, and he has already glorified someone. So before time began, God summoned the people for himself. And for those people that he called, he's going to make sure all things work together for good. That's a great support. Now here's my encouragement just... Because this is a big bite. It's a big theological bite. And some of us like to dive into this little golden chain, which sometimes can be a controversy. You're trying to figure out the timing and order and what does that mean about God's will and man's will. And and look, that's important. I'm not trying to minimize it. What I'm trying to say for people who are in the mind is just stand there and be awed by it without trying to figure everything out. It's like you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and don't say, well, you know, this rock sediment here. And then, I mean, come on. Just be like, wow, this is incredible. And then, you know, over time, try to figure some stuff out. That's fine. I'm not trying to squash your curiosity. But what I'm trying to say is the most amazing thing is just that it exists. And it's so much bigger than we could possibly ever discover. And before you get into sort of a friendly argument about which comes first and all that stuff, just be amazed that God is doing something before all time began for good for you. That's, that's the way I think Paul wants us to take this. Well, you and I might feel burdened under the weight of suffering Paul wants to say, hey, there's something happening on God's surface. And it's for your good. Third point here, and we're going to come towards an end. All things are working together for these people that love God and who are called. And they're working for good. That would be another bite I'd want to take. Good. What's Paul mean by good? So he's, he's aiming towards something and he's calling that good. So what is, what is God, what is, what is Paul aiming us to or the Lord aiming us to? What's, what's God's ultimate aim for us? I would say the answer is verse 29. To be conformed to the image of his son. This, this one phrase so beautiful, so dense, so connected to the rest of the Bible. I, I really wish you could have like a hyperlink Bible. 
that, you know, electronic, you just push this word and it expands out all the ways Paul meant for you to think about this from other places in the Bible. I mean, they sort of have that in a concordance, but I like hyperlinks because it's a lot easier, right? Just push the word and bingo, here's the answer. But just think about these words. First of all, we are, we are made in his image. We're going to be conformed to his image, image. Image, think about that as a hyperlink. God's forming us into an image. If you pressed on that word as the hyperlink, what's the first thing it would take you to? Where does God form people in his image? Back in Genesis chapter 1. See, it's a recreation moment when you meet Christ. He's, He's forming us back into this image Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you and I were created in God's image, and that's exactly what what Christ is recreating in us. You and I meant to be like God, not to be God, but to, to image him. And we decided, you know what? We'd like to look like this stuff down here. So we traded in the image. Instead of being like God and business partners with God, we trade in an image that resembles ourselves or resembles creation. So instead of our getting our image, our value, our worth from God, we fell in love with what other people think about us. And we've been ruled by that forever. Or we fell in love with things. I get my value from what I have. What a disastrous trade. But now the good news of the gospel is Jesus has summoned us. He's called us back to himself. He's he's creating this new image of himself back to the way it was supposed to be. And we're going to be conformed. We're going to be shaped into his his image, which means we're going to be in partnership with him again. And, And now that we're back into his image, we need to do what Genesis 1 tells us we need to step out into the chaos of the world and rule over the world just like Christ would rule over the world and bring the goodness of God into the world. Now, here's where I want to be very careful and then try to give just one one piece of application because we're going to run out of time. If we are conformed to the image of Christ, which we are, as it says it here in Romans 8, 29. If we're supposed to partner with God, if we're supposed to enter into the world, rule over the world like Jesus, to extend his goodness out into the world, how do we project God's power out into the world? It's a very important question. We're being made in his image. How are we supposed to project God's power now out into the world? In Acts 1, the disciples thought it was politics. Got quickly shot down by Jesus. Where is the most potent projection of Jesus' power. This
This is it. I will be glorified when I am lifted up. So yes, you and I are supposed to project God's power into the world. But what does that look like? It looks like suffering. You see, that's completely upside down with the way many Christians think today. Yes, we're supposed to have power. And it's just like the world, just like the disciples thought. They're standing there with the resurrected Jesus saying, now we're going we're gonna to be in power. I'm going to be at your right-hand side. I'm going to be at your... I mean, it was the whole worldly dynamic. And he's like, guys, don't you get it? This is it. If anyone wants to follow after me, what does he say? He's got to take up his cross. That's how Jesus projects his power out into the world. He's come to say, yes, now you're in, you're in business with me. Guess what? Go to the cross. And go there and enter into the world and suffer with the world. And show through your suffering the goodness of God. Drop yourself down a half a mile into somebody's canyon and say, God's at work. And I'm going to stay down here with you until you understand it. That's how we project God's power. This is, now, this is, now, now that you, you, you probably already knew it, but if you haven't, you're going to see this all over the Bible. Think, just think about the Beatitudes, the, the blessings. Blessed are those who are, what? Persecuted. Mourn. Peacemakers. People who get involved with difficult situations. Those who, who, who give mercy because people don't deserve mercy, they're almost all about projecting God's goodness in difficult circumstances. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you see injustice in the world and you enter into that, there's suffering in entering into that. But that's how God projects his power now, which is exactly what Paul has in mind in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, some of you know this, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's how you project power. You don't accumulate power like the world. You do it totally different the way God would do it. That's how the world changes. That's how hearts and minds change is you project power by picking up your cross, entering into the chaos of our complex world, and laying your life down, your body down for people. That's how it happens. Now, there's massive application and implication. And I'm over my time right now. So let's just give one example. You're a high school student. You're a college student. Now you know this. You're a follower of Jesus. You're, a, you're in business. He wants to shake hands, be your business partner. You're at the moment of trying to decide, how am I going to intersect and enter into the world? 
It might not change your major, but it would change your mentality. I'm entering the world that's suffering, and I'm going to enter in, and I'm going to suffer with it. And I'm going to project God's glory into that by laying down my life. See, just thinking about that as you think about your career might change how you use your time, how you use your intelligence, what's really valuable. I mean, it drives me crazy when you see these graduate programs. We get so many people, these many jobs, and here's their starting salary. I'm like, come on. See, that's what's valuable to them. But you might have bought into that. I'm trying to get you to buy into reality. Yes, project yourself out into the world. Yes, have power. But that kind of power. I'm going to start preaching if I don't stop right now. So let's pray. Lord, this this is like a a buffet of great desserts. And we can't possibly bite into every one of them. But you can, by your Holy Spirit, as we've seen, you can enter into the deepest parts of our, our hearts, our souls. And you can use this, this passage, this conform to the image of your Son in a way that might be transformative for some people today, they'd say, yeah, in August of 2019, I, I started thinking differently. It's, it's really your work to do. Thank you for your kindness to help us. We pray in Jesus' name.